0: all in a paradigm, a set of beliefs, and it governs our what we see, it governs our behaviors, and it causes us, often, people not to see opportunity. They just can't see it, even if you have all this data. And we need to, ourselves, be able to work to try to look outside of our paradigm, force us to see the world differently. Otherwise, we'll be missing opportunities, right and left, just as those investors did.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, My call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. When was the first time you were in this office?
0: Well, I was in Kleiner offices before there was an office here. So there was a San Francisco office back at the time they funded us in the um, early, early 90s. And the first time for this, I don't even remember. Where was
1: the office when... Was it in San Francisco? Yeah, in the city. It Was it like uh, one of the Embarcadero Center buildings? God, I don't remember now.
0: It was not as nice an office as this. What year was that? Kleiner Perkins invested in
1: 1990. Okay. Funny how the world comes around, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I'm thrilled to do this. I appreciate it. I think we can just kick things off. I get all of these things started the exact same way, which is I read my guests' backgrounds back to them. You went to USC? You got your BA in math and economics. Then in 76, you went to Harvard? 74. 74. You graduated in 76. Correct. Okay, that makes sense. Graduated in 76. Then you went to P&G, Procter & Gamble, for four years Mm -hmm. as a brand manager. I feel like they call everybody a brand manager.
0: Oh, no. You start with a much less august title, (laughs) and
1: then you get promoted, and then
0: you get promoted again, and then you're a brand manager.
1: Brand manager is the big time.
0: Uh, Well... Uh, It's the first leadership role,
1: I would say that. (laughs) But there's a lot of other leaders on top of you. Totally, totally. (laughs) Then you went to Bain as a consultant. How long were you there for? Two and a half years. Two and a half years. You ultimately left in 83. Correct. Okay. To co-found Intuit. That's right. And you were the president and CEO for 11 years, the chairman for five years, and you've been, well, I guess you've been the chairman ever since.
0: No, I was the chairman for a number of years afterwards, and then I gave that title to Bill Campbell when he left the CEO role right? because I wanted him to stay active with the company. Right. And so I've had essentially no title ever since.
1: Nothing. If you were to put something on your LinkedIn, what would it say? The company is still haunted by the founder who won't go away. And you still have an Intuit email. Oh, yeah. And do you go to the office? Well, not in COVID,
0: but I'm in coaching executives or in product team meetings Heck, I even ran a project last
1: year. Are you uh, serious? Mm-hmm. How many hours a week do you think you spend on Intuit stuff?
0: Well, this month being August, I'm feeling very European. Uh, ah, <laughs> so, summer vacation. Yeah, summer vacation. Yes, More European than I've ever felt. I would think it's half
1: of the work week. Can I ask, how old, old are, you? are you? 70. You, do you still love working? Yeah. Because I'm going to guess that the other half of the work week, you're also working. Like you're doing things. Well, there's a chunk of that. Yes, that's true. You don't strike me as the guy that's chilling under the mango tree. <laughs> we don't have mango trees here. It's <laughs> <laughs> a trick question. <laughs> so you know what the,
0: what's the old song? Find the job you love and you'll never work another day in your life. Yeah. So I like the job. And it's, so it's not work.
1: Can I read you a quote? I just took a picture of this. Hmm. It's from Steve Jobs because he has a very similar expression. And you just reminded me of it. It's from the book, How Will You Measure Your Life? Do you know what book I'm talking oh, yeah. about? Absolutely. Section one is finding happiness in your career. And each section has a, somebody that has a quote to kick things off. And, and this was from Steve. The only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking. Don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know when you find it. Well done. What a great quote, huh? Well done. As soon as I read that, I sent it to the team. Yeah. And I had a moment of reflection where I felt like that. I felt very lucky to have that.
0: That's the thing we should all strive for. And if not, keep looking. And companies play a role in delivering that. Companies can take the joy out of work if they're not careful.
1: You know, you said like the European summer that you've had going, our culture, we're we're pretty good at spending a lot of time at work. And a lot of the times I feel like it's for the wrong reasons, like doing it because you don't love it. And if you love it, you're going to be really good at it. Yes, yes. 30 years at Intuit? Longer than that now. That's amazing. On Monday morning, after the weekend. Were you excited to go to work? Oh, it was a mix. I'd say
0: when I was a uh, CEO, there were definitely days where I was totally excited about coming into work. And there were other days when I dreaded it because I didn't have the all the skill set I needed, particularly as the company grew. And on um, the days when I knew I had things to do that I wasn't good at or didn't like doing, then I dragged in those days. And it's one thing to talk about. One thing that I've learned since is, it's really important to work on improving the stuff where you're not yet good enough. Mm -hmm. And that is really the hallmark of a great person. I was a lot happier, on average, once I got Bill Campbell to come in and replace me as CEO. And then I could focus almost all my time on the stuff that I'm much better at and that I like to do.
1: And today, do you think you would be happy if you were, I know you're a hiker, you like reading, could you do just that? Or do you think you would, I don't know, is that not giving you enough?
0: Yeah, I think I voted with my feet on that one because I certainly could afford to do that if I chose to. Yeah, to kick back and do things outside of work.
1: I don't think you're doing this for the money.
0: Yeah, that's right. You know, if it's not the stuff at work, then it's the stuff. You know, right now I'm reading the the written work from our philanthropy team for our meeting tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So we're we kind of act like a venture capitalist in a way, but without getting equity and invest in nonprofits. But we have the same discipline and rigor, and there is a lengthy memo in advance that describes the decision the team wants to make and my wife and I review that and then we do team meetings. So it's the same sort of work I do at work and then we coach our team on how we can do better. So it's the same kind of work. And I think it's just the mix. You wanna make sure you got enough personal time in the mix and I get more than the rest of the employees that are into it. These days? Uh, yeah, these
1: days. You felt like you're making up for lost time from the old days?
0: Oh, I think time once lost is lost forever. You know, particularly time with your kids and family. And when they're young, I don't view it as that. I wish I could get that time back, but Do you? I, there's not a
1: way. In the sense that you're building into it. You're doing what was required of you to build that company. Doing it over again, would you have reallocated your time in different ways?
0: One can run that experiment multiple ways. I think starting over with no knowledge of the future, I'd be the same person I was. But with the knowledge of the future I have now, I would have done some things differently That would have meant spending my time a little bit differently. And I like to believe that would have enabled me to, in addition to spending a bit more time at key times with the kids, also to have clearer memories. The thing that I most miss is even with the time that I had with the kids, I don't have the clearest memories of those times. And I'd love to be able to replay the movie in my mind Mm. of those times, because they were so... Rich and meaningful at the time. And joyful. And joyful and painful. You get the whole mix, the whole panoply of emotion. But it's that ability to live and relive that, that I really miss because life was such a rush.
1: Do you think that you don't recall that time that well because there was just so many things happening? Or do you think it was the specifics of, maybe I'll ask a different way. Do you remember the times of joy and pain in work more vividly than you do those times in your personal life?
0: I think I have faded memories of both. I'm not a writer, but I wish I were. And I could have jotted and made some sort of little journal entries every day, just noting what was important in the life of the day. I would treasure that today if I had it.
1: And the reason I ask is maybe like, do you think you were not present in the personal life because you were consumed with work? Or do you think maybe you're not present at work because you were consumed with the personal life? And just really hard to find that balance when they're competing priorities in that way.
0: And life is filled with competing priorities. It's, it's always that way. And if you don't feel priorities competing, then you probably feel left out.
1: Isn't it hard to regret that looking backwards? Isn't it yeah. just unfair? Because you were doing what you thought was best at that time right. based on the set of circumstances. Yeah, I don't regret the time use
0: as much as I regret not having the clear recollections of the times that I had at work with the family. You know, some people just have that gift of recollection. Bill Campbell, for example, he could ch- cite chapter and verse of meeting after meeting he'd been in discussions he'd had with people, this rich memory, and I wasn't born with that gift, so the intervention is find some alternative way of recording that, and I wish I had done that mm. you know, maybe wake up each morning and write what was significant yesterday
1: for those that don't know into it, which man, I think at this point, most people do, but it's a fortune. 500, like in the fortune 300s, it's something like that. 14,000 plus employees, market cap of 130 billion, 10 plus billion of revenue in 2021. I also forgot to mention you were on the boards of eBay from 98 to 2015 on the board of Procter and Gamble from 2000 to 2020, not too long ago, which is a nice homage to the brand manager days. Mm -hmm. And you were on the board of Amazon correct? Correct. How long, from 97 to when? 2003, six years. And did John Doerr help facilitate that? Yeah, he introduced Jeff and me, yeah. And were you sitting on the board with Bing? Bing was not yet on the board. Got it. And John was? John was. And then you're also on the board of HBS? They have an advisory board. Okay. What's the
0: difference? A real board has governance authority. Right. At Harvard, the governance authority is placed with the what they call the Harvard Corporation. So... There's the dean selects an advisory board of people that he wants <coughs> advice from and people he'd like funds from. Mm-hmm. So I'm on the advisory board because the Harvard Corporation has the actual governance responsibility.
1: Right. It's a way of keeping you close. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Meg was the CEO at eBay while you were there? Meg Whitman, yes. Yes. And then it transferred to John after she retired from the CEO role. And was that during your tenure on the board? Yes. I was flying to go see Steve Case. Hmm. And I sat on the plane and I had a layover in Chicago. I think I was flying from somewhere obscure, Montana. And I sit down, and across the aisle from me is someone that looks an awfully lot like Meg Whitman. And as soon as I sat down, I said, Hey, this is going to be a strange comment, but I don't, has anyone ever told you that your doppelganger is Meg Whitman? And she said, You know, I've heard that before. That's me. <laughs> 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 do you know steve case oh, yeah. yeah yeah i figured i was reading his new book which is coming out in a few weeks and she's like oh what are you reading and of course small world she's you know an investor in revolution that lp and so we got to talking and she's a great lady
0: and meg was at G, and then bain same time i was And uh, Steve Case was also at P&G just a bit after me. Yes, he was. Did you know either of them? Oh, I knew Meg at P&G, absolutely. Was she a star? She worked in a different part of the company, so it's hard to assess. Yeah. But it was a loss when she left. It was. Mm -hmm. What do you think she thought of you? Oh, not much, I don't think. Rising brand manager star? It's a big company. (laughs) You know, Steve Ballmer was also there. I helped recruit Steve. Right. You did? Mm -hmm. What did you tell me about that? Oh, he was uh, graduating from Harvard, and I flew out with a senior guy to have dinner with him and try to persuade him to come, and he he came. Steve Ballmer, CEO of Microsoft for a while, right? He was President? He was CEO for quite a while. After Bill resigned as CEO and stayed chairman, Steve became the CEO for 10, 15 years. And you knew he had the stuff? Steve has always been Steve. I remember him being very thoughtful. Even though he had been at the company half as long as I had, he could explain some of the fundamental company thinking better than I could. He had a very inquiring mind that could see the big picture, and see patterns. And I admired that in him.
1: When you were a young CEO, who were the folks that you wanted to emulate? Mm.
0: Well, it wasn't so much about any single person. Because I've believed, and we believed at the beginning, what we were trying to build was rooted to start within a single product to solve a problem, a customer problem. But the company we wanted to create wouldn't be dependent ultimately on any single product or any single person or any single business, that it would be bigger and more durable and long-lasting. It was more companies that I felt were worthy of emulation. One was Procter & Gamble, which at the time was over 100 years old, well over 100 years, and had started in soap and candles, bar soap and candles, and look at the range of products and businesses where they've developed fundamental advantage over competitors and really made much better products than their rivals. And building a company and a system inside the company, a process that could keep reproducing success, one success after another, and keep growing its leaders to grow one successful executive after another. Later, after a few years, I studied Toyota and they had similarly done an unexpectedly remarkable job of creating a process of work that allowed them to come from nowhere essentially to become the world's preeminent automaker making cars at a cost and quality that no one else on the planet could match can i
1: revisit the steve dinner really quick mm-hmm. i'm very curious you know he has this stuff you obviously knew that because you're flying out to dinner to recruit him what are you saying at dinner what's your strategy when you're recruiting someone like that what are you trying to get across
0: well, I don't recall the specifics of what he was curious about. A lot of what you do, once, the, once you've made the decision that you want someone, a lot of it is to understand their mind on how are they going to make their decision between their choices, or what's important to them, and then help respond so you can explain what your life's like so they can see, through your experience, my experience, whether they're going to get what they're seeking if they join the company.
1: Who's the toughest person you ever had to recruit, ever, in your entire career? What is the hardest recruiting process? And maybe you can couch that in, the one that was the most rewarding, ultimately. Hmm.
0: Well, for most rewarding, there would be so many candidates, it would be hard to pick. So let's go with your first version of the question, which was hardest. Pivotal was the very first hire, Tom Prue, my co-founder. If he hadn't gotten captured by the same mission so we could co-develop quickly, there wouldn't be a company. And here I had nothing, I had nothing but ideas to recruit him with. So it sure felt like a challenge at the time. Later, recruiting Eric Dunn, who without him, the company wouldn't have survived the Microsoft onslaught. I'm trying to think, I don't have a good answer for which was hardest. I can say one that was hard in a way it shouldn't have been when we hired Brad Smith. And who's Brad Smith? We hired Brad in the early 2000s and moved him into one of our smallest executive jobs. And then we moved him rather rapidly through three other executive jobs. And then in 2007, made him CEO. And he was Intuit's, 2008, excuse me. He was Intuit's CEO for 11 years, 11 plus years, and did a spectacular job. But what made the hiring (laughs) unexpectedly challenging is as soon as we hired him, he got sued by his former employer for... um, breach of contract and all this other stuff. And so we had a whole legal hoop to do to go through with depositions and all this stuff. And
1: ultimately the, the judge ruled against, <laughs> threw their case out. You know you're hiring someone good when there's a lawsuit on, that's following them out the door. We actually, our chief attorney talked to their attorney, but why are you doing this? You know, this is California, you can't. Well, of course we're suing you in
0: New Jersey. And so why are you doing this? I mean, you're never gonna get them back. And they said, no, we're trying to send a message to everyone else, so we don't lose more people. Oh, that's healthy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> by torturing poor Brad. Right,
1: we're going to make an example of him. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like he was worth the pursuit. It was, absolutely. The co-founder that you ended up recruiting, mm-hmm. is the story true that it happened somewhat by accident on Stanford campus? Absolutely. Go ahead, why don't you tell the story? Yeah, so I
0: was hanging posters that I printed up saying, wanted software engineer to work on really cool product. Because you're not an engineer. I'm not a software engineer, correct. Correct. went on the Stanford campus, and I didn't know where the engineering building was because I didn't go to Stanford. So I took a guess, and I walked into a building, the Terman building. So it turned out to be a good guess. But then I didn't really know know, where the students look. So I went up to a group of students that were seated in a circle outside the library. I said, hey, I'm creating this cool company to build this cool product, and I'm trying to recruit a top engineering mind. Where should I hang these posters? And they said, well, you know, probably over there in that bulletin board and go down there and put it over there and put it over there. And then one of the guys said, oh, give me one of those. I might be interested in. And that was Tom Pru. Wow. So tell me more about that. Did you get to talking to him? Not right then. He took the poster and that was it. And I went off and hung posters. And then he told me later, of course, And it's odd that nobody responded to it. And he said, yeah, you came during dead week or whatever it is when everyone's studying for finals, so no one's in the building. They're all in their dorm studying, so nobody saw your posters. (laughs) But he was intrigued, and he called back. I think I left the phone number on. Yeah, this was pre-email. And uh, we started talking, and I had also done this at San Jose State, and Tom was distinctly different and off the charts better than my other option. So but thank But how goodness. do
1: you know he's off the charts better if you're not a software
0: engineer? It was hard for me to assess software skills. I wasn't up to snuff enough to do that. But what I was trying to assess is could this person embrace not just the vision but the mindset, the paradigm that I was creating the company in? So you have to rewind back to this being 19, early 1983. Personal computers had just been on the market for a few years. Software was still scarce, and the machines were very wimpy. And the software at the time was very defeatured, And so everything was in a mad feature race to add more and more features. But as a result, nobody was focused on user experience. The concept of user experience, no one had those words. Usability, those words didn't exist. So software was really hard to use. It came with thick manuals to teach you how to use because it was so obscure. It was like in some ways learning a new language, which is not easy. It just wasn't, the focus was all about features, not about ease of use. And we were doing the opposite, 180 degree opposite. My belief was you focus on just a few features, the things that people use most, and you make it drop dead easy. And then you measure the outcome. A feature isn't an outcome. An outcome is, did it improve your life? In our case, we were trying to eliminate the time and hassle of doing financial stuff. So you get out a stopwatch and you time test with real users and you keep building it until you, one, they can get started with no help. It has to be dropped dead easy so they need no assistance, no manual, no quick reference card. And you do it in test sessions. You test your way there. Now that's called usability testing. Back then, nobody had a name for it. And then you stopwatch time, time trial. How fast do they do the work compared to doing it by hand? compared to doing it by competitors. So it's all focus on the outcome most important to the customer and then make sure it's so easy and intuitive. And no one was doing that. And I think most engineers at the time thought, well, that's ridiculous. I want to be building new power and stuff. But Tom got it. Tom mm-hmm. understood. If you're going to be big in the consumer arena, you got to make it so consumers love it. And he got that. That was the essential mindset. It's why we didn't get venture capital because our mindset was so opposite of the industry at the time. So I needed somebody who could Embrace. In fact, lead us on that. He then embraced and then designed. He was the one who figured out how to make the database look like a check register. At the time, everybody knew what a check register was. No average consumer knew what a database was. So we, to make it intuitive to you, we need to make it look and work like something that's familiar to you so we don't have to teach you something new. And Tom was the one who figured out how to do that.
1: And the reason you started the company originally, was because of your wife. Am I, is that right? Yeah, she was the spark. In two
0: senses. One, she was the spark when she complained about doing the bills. Sitting at the kitchen table doing the bills. Doing the joint checkbook for us. And she's very good at it. It wasn't a quality problem. It just, it was a waste of her time. Yeah. And a repetitive waste. You had to do it every month. So that was the spark. And then that kind of fell on. What do they say? Opportunity falls on the, or luck starts with a prepared mind or something like that. Mm-hmm. But suddenly it clicked that, oh, wait a minute, this is a classic Procter & Gamble problem. P&G's business is find some important problem that lots of people have, like bad breath or poopy diapers or dirty clothes, where you can invent, build a technology that's superior in solving that problem. And this sounded like that sort of problem. "Hmm, Everybody has to pay bills. I bet most people don't like doing it. And I think Based on my experience, I taught myself to code when I was a kid, that, gee, personal computers, they should be able to do that rather well. There were other tasks people theorized at the time that personal computers at the time would be terrible at, like recipes. The data entry burden, no way. But this was one, because bills are recurrent, you tend to pay the same bills, most of them month to month, it could learn that so you didn't have to type in very much. So it seemed to fit what even the wimpy computers of the time could do well. Can you tell
1: me about this photo?
0: Well, this is a photo shot in our current headquarters in Mountain View in a nook that was built in the campus central. And in the nook is a table and chairs. The table is the kitchen table that we had in 1982, where Signy, my wife, groused about doing the bills. So that's the table at which the idea was hatched. Still in the office? Yeah, they wanted to keep it in the offices uh, or put it in the office as a memento. And then there's on the wall, there's some old photos from some of those, uh, the original package from 1984 and, oh gosh, uh, some photos
1: of the early days. What a great memento of the past. You mentioned that's why every VC turned you down. You're not kidding when you say that. Over two dozen VCs turned you down. This is a stupid question. Was Sandow a thing then? Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: It was then, as it is today, the world headquarters of Venture Capital.
1: Okay. But we didn't have an office there.
0: That's correct. Huh. That's correct. And my office, when I was with Bain, was just up the street here, a half block away at 3,000 Sand Hill. So I could literally walk to the venture capitalist offices. Just walking and getting no's from Uh, each person. Yeah. 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 Sometimes
1: they wouldn't even let me walk in. (laughs) (laughs) And that was very surprising to you because you have stopwatch data. And I'm not using that metaphorically. Literally. Literally. Stopwatch data of users testing the product, going in there, and you're showing the delta of improvement from how long it used to take them to do their taxes to- or Finances, yeah, yeah. Yeah, their finances to using Intuit now. Yep, using Quicken. And, using Quicken, And yes. also we stopwatch
0: time trial with the competitors, of users using the competitors. And you're walking around Sandhill with the data. Yes. Were you just incredulous? It was shocking. I thought this was going to be easy. Because we waited. We didn't go out and get venture capital when it was just an idea in Tom's in my mind. Because he was still a student at Stanford, and I'd worked in the food division of Procter & Gamble, we knew we didn't look like the ideal Mm -hmm. experienced team to invest in. So we waited till we had the product pretty well along being built, and we had done enough of these test sessions, so we actually had the data. I thought it would be easy, and I learned something, a powerful lesson from that. We got turned down by everyone, including my roommate at HBS. Your roommate at HBS was a venture capitalist.
1: Yep. Turned you down. Yep. That must have felt good.
0: Well, he was not alone. And, you know, some of the firms wouldn't even give us a second meeting, but even those uh, who gave us a second meeting,
1: they all said no. Did that determine you more, or was that just what letdown feels like, being let down? Yes, it was what let down, dramatically let down,
0: and being somewhat embarrassed by thinking it would be easy. When, in fact, it wasn't. I kind of was embarrassed in front of the team.
1: Right. Because you're probably on the mantle talking about how we're going to go do this right now. We have all, like, you're confident.
0: Yeah, I was confident. Yeah. And Tom and I would do the pitches and we just got nowhere. And there's a fundamental reason why. Uh, In fact, I just wrote a piece on it over the weekend. I don't think it added to the determination. Our determination came out of seeing how people were getting screwed by the existing products. Because there were personal finance products on the market. There were a couple dozen. You just knew there was a better way Absolutely. and you had it.
1: We had the data. We'd proven there was a better way. What was the piece that you just wrote that you th- there's a specific reason you mentioned?
0: Yeah, it's the power of paradigm, mental paradigms, mindsets that we all live in to shape what you see in the world and condition it to your pre-existing beliefs, causing you to not believe and not even see things that differ from your paradigm. This was originally written about by a... Um, sociologist and historian of science, a guy named Thomas Kuhn, published a book uh, in early 60s, I think it was The Structure of Scientific Discovery. The existing belief most of the people had, and I had it too, was that science is a cumulative and smooth kind of monotonic improvement in the search for truth. You keep discovering more and more truths and scientists are truth seekers, constantly adding to human knowledge and they're agnostic, they're just looking for truth. And that's kind of the impression most of us have about scientists. Well, he studied the history of science and said, "Oh, contraire, that's not true at all. Science has long periods where they're just fleshing out details on an existing paradigm that everyone believes, but that ultimately doesn't explain things very well. But everyone believes it. So for decades or hundreds of years, people believed that the Earth was at the center of the universe, or that diseases were caused by mi- miasmas and swamps. And then suddenly, some generally young person comes up with an alternative paradigm that better explains some of the anomalies that the original paradigm doesn't explain. Such as Copernicus came up after seeing that some of the stars didn't move as they should have, and some of the planets, if the Earth truly was at the center, uh, he came up with the Copernican view, which the sun is at the center of the solar system. And there was uh, people who invented the germ theory to explain disease. And then Kuhn described how generally all of the believers in the original paradigm go to their deaths still believing the original paradigm.
1: And tell me, how do you corroborate that paradigm with walking up and down Sand Hill Road? The paradigm at the time was, for good reasons, that software is
0: all about features and not about ease of use. And in fact, you had Visicalc, a huge success, and then Lotus one 2, 3 came out with far more features and became even more successful and eventually crushed Physical, same thing in word processing. It was all about a features race. Ease of use wasn't important. That was one part. Another part of the mindset is that up till then, venture capitalists had invested primarily in B2B companies. Venture capitalists invested in chip companies that sell chips. Well, consumers don't buy chips. Chips are bought by other companies. same thing for you know, industrial machines and chip making machines. Venture capital generally invested in industrial products. And we were decidedly making a consumer product. And since we'd largely built the product, we were going to take the proceeds from the venture capitalists and invest in advertising. that's not something venture capitalists had done before. They didn't have experience with it. So that was outside their paradigm. We were just so different from their experience base and from their belief set. It's also why we got no good reviews, because reviewers, back then software was benefit from a whole industry of magazines that tested software and produced reviews. Reviewers believe the same thing. It's all about more features. More features is better. And so we r- routinely lost all of those reviews. So the whole industry, stores, believe the same thing. Why would I stock your product? I've already got two products that do more than yours. And were you willing to go to the grave with the paradigm that
1: you believed in around ease of use? Absolutely, because
0: it's the only way you ultimately win. And, and in fact, every one of those competitors went to the grave.
1: And I think that's right, they did. And you're still here working it into it with an yes. Intuit email address. Yes. Now, I think easy to armchair quarterback that in hindsight, right? Like, of course, because it worked out. At the time, on your 24th rejection on Sand Hill Road and all the reviews that subsequently followed that you're wrong. Were you still willing to go to the grave with that paradigm? Well, one, we didn't have the money to do anything else.
0: <laughs> That's one. We couldn't change. This was more than a setback. This was crushing. I didn't come from money. We didn't I used my Bain retirement plan and i borrowed some money from my dad his savings for his retirement Um, but i couldn't do any more of that i also knew by then that you just can't produce a product and expect people to buy it there was at that time software sold through stores you had to get into the stores and the stores weren't going to buy it unless they had people asking about it and nobody was asking about our product so it really looked like an unsolvable problem it just didn't look like there was a path
1: you were advised to go find some rich people if the venture capitalists yeah. aren't yeah. gonna aren't gonna invest. Yeah,
0: yeah. One of the guys in the company said, "Scott, this VC thing isn't working. Yeah. Let's go talk to some rich people." I said, "Well, I, I don't know any rich people," and he said, "Well, I know two. So we went to talk to those two, and amazingly, we were looking for two million in total from the venture capitalists. We were able to score one hundred and fifty-one thousand from the two guys.
1: Let me ask you this: Now you're the rich guy. Is that ever lost on you? In the sense that maybe you are the person that could be the spark, that 150 k that was so meaningful to you?
0: And that's why I wrote the note over the weekend, was to share the concept of paradigm and the examples. There's a whole bunch of examples. Google is an example of a whole different paradigm. People thought they were nuts. Well, wow, we already got search engines. Why? You want to be a portal. You want to be like Yahoo. You want to have horoscopes and weather and dating. And Amazon was square, was another paradigm shift. and. Then I gave some of our internal examples of the company. And all of this is to remind our and teach our leaders to know that we're all in a paradigm, a set of beliefs, and it governs our what we see, it governs our behaviors, and it causes us often people not to see opportunity. They just can't see it, even if you have all this data. And we need to ourselves be able to work to try to look outside of our paradigm force us to see the world differently. Otherwise, we'll be missing opportunities right and left, just as those investors did when we were out getting turned down.
1: That 150 k injected a little bit of oxygen into the business. didn't last very long, did it?
0: No, and we couldn't afford the marketing. That was just enough to keep the doors open for a while. So there went all of our marketing. So now we can Stay alive
1: for another year, but- Keep the team of ragtags, six, right. eight people that you have yep. together.
0: Yep, but we still don't have a way to get to market. I mean, kind of in desperation, I'd been a consultant at Bain to the banking industry. Wells Fargo was my big client. And so I went up and talked to the guys at Wells Fargo, ran the retail bank, because I knew them from the consulting market, and said, here's what I'm doing. And one of them came up with an idea. He said, well, why don't you talk to some of my people, and maybe we should sell your product to our customers. So when things got desperate, I- back and said, oh, that's oh, that could be a good idea. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Right. And sure enough, Wells Fargo then took their money and bought units from us, which we needed the cash. They took their money to market it. And because they have some clout today, we actually got TV coverage. A TV reporter showing the up. The original gamblers. days of a
1: reseller. They were the first yes, channel yes. partners. They were our
0: first channel partners, yeah. Wells Fargo. And then they introduced us to other Who would banks. Who thought Wells Fargo of all, the, of all the channel partners? Yeah. So I didn't know anything about channel partners, but I didn't have another. There's, I had no other game. If you so. did, you
1: still wouldn't have gone to Wells Fargo.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, so we ultimately, we signed up Wells and a second bank, but then we couldn't sign up anymore because this was such a weird idea. Banks don't sell software right. boxes. And that's when we ran out of money, the 151000 then ran out. So we had to stop paying salaries. And I think it was May of 1985, I went in front of the company, the seven of us, and said, you know, guys, I got to say we are out of money, or we'll soon be. So I will pay you for the time you've worked, but we can't pay you going forward. And I, I dearly love you to stay. It's not a layoff. I just don't have the money to pay you. So I know some of you are going to have to find jobs that actually pay money. And fortunately, four of us stayed, three uh, left. That valiant crew stayed until we could figure out a way to get some more cash coming in. At that point, it didn't cross your mind to shut the doors? It did cross my mind that we probably should try to sell the business to find somebody, but it Shutting the doors
1: When you say the business, like the IP
0: on the software. Well, we had product in boxes. We had actually lots of product in boxes. Yeah. Because we weren't selling. In fact, we had to give back the rented computers and give back the rented furniture. So we brought in card tables from home. And then we used cases of unsold product as printer stands. And we had lots of cases of unsold product. <laughs> so, but the problem with shutting it down was this. I had borrowed money from my dad. I had taken money from the two investors. And even though it was equity, I thought I needed to pay it back. I mean, they didn't invest. You lose. owed it to them. Yeah, I owed it to them. So that meant I had three hundred and some odd thousand dollars that I was going to have to pay back if I shut it down. That was all on me, and trying to do that through just a uh, through a normal job.
1: Yeah, going back to Bain
0: <laughs> would mean you know a decade or more of kind of indentured servitude to pay off the debts that I had run up, and that was the problem with closing it. So, which is why I was trying to figure out how to. Get out if I could find somebody who would, but no one raised their hand to want to buy the company. So, how horrible of a feeling was that? It was really tough at home. My wife is a planner and she'd say, Well, what's the plan, Scott? And I said, Well, we tried the plan, it didn't work. Well, what's the new plan? Well, I'm working on that. So, it was, we were in rocky times. Now, it turns out years later, after we had pulled it out of the death spiral, after I mentioned how I was willing to sell the company if I could have found a buyer, Tom and Ginny and I were incredulous. What? What? No, we were dead. We were committed. We knew we had the best product. We never had a doubt. <laughs> Why yeah, but I was on the one on the hook having to pay back all the debts. So I think the thing that kept the team going was the real belief we had solved the real customer problem. And we had the data. And now we had by this point we had some extremely happy users that we'd gotten through our first two banks. Small numbers, but so we really had the belief. And we thought if we did this right, this should be the best-selling software sold into households because it does something that all households have to do. This should be on the best-seller list. In fact, this should be high on the best-seller list if we did our jobs right. That's what kept us and the team going. And for me, it was the fear of getting out from the debts. And how old were you at that point? Uh, 33. And did you have kids? No. No kids yet? Okay. It's fortunate my wife had a very good job in the software industry. So we were never threat of losing our home, thanks to her good job. Yeah. How hard was it at home? Um, Let's say my mind has fogged over some of that. One of those memories. Yes. Yes. One of those memories. Even if
1: you kept a diary, maybe there would have been a few entries (laughs) missing from it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it was. And part of it, I was so focused on work at that time that I'm sure Signe felt the, the brunt of that. And felt ignored as well. I'm sure that was contributing because I was so manic about every. I mean, I was on the road trying to sell more banks because that was our only hope for revenue. Right. And back then, People's Express had been invented. So there were really cheap air seats so I could get to the East Coast where most of the banks were. And I would stay with friends. I didn't have the money to pay hotels, except in New York where I didn't have a friend in Manhattan who'd take me in. And there was this flea bag motel across the street with another place where the lights would come on for 10 minutes and off for 20 and then on for 10. And I think it was a full service lodging institute for temporary stays. Uh, So, I I mean, I just, we didn't have the money. So it was pinching every penny. We stopped paying bills so we could just save money for the, you had to pay for the phone bill or they'd shut you off. Yeah, and then eventually I was able to sell some more banks. Eventually after this long dry spell, we ultimately went from two banks to 10 banks and each bank that signed up bought product for us, paid up front. So we got loads of cash coming in for product we'd already built. And that looked like we'd actually made the channel work. Yeah. And that was around 86, I think, if
1: I'm not mistaken. Yes.
0: That was late 85 and 86. Yep. And then sadly, what happened is we started studying the sell-through results of the channel we had built. In other words, of the 1,000 units we'd sell a bank, how many would they actually sell? And we found only one bank had succeeded, our second bank. The rest of them bought inventory, couldn't move it. And after we saw this time and time again, by the time the 8th, ninth, and 10th banks had the same thing, I no longer could go out and tell another bank, hey, this is going to work. In good conscience. In good conscience. I couldn't. My conscience wouldn't let me go and pitch it to more banks. Cause I, Even though it was keeping the lights on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was our really sole source of support. Yeah. I couldn't do that. I mean, yes, we had one success, but that was bank two. Banks three through 10 couldn't get it to work. Because when you think about it, banks don't They don't sell product. And they don't of sell course. software. And they put the product in the vault. Where do people not shop for software? I mean, fortunately, we'd saved a little money because we'd been so penny-pinching. We'd start, started paying salaries again. But Tom and I sat down and said, look, this is not going to work. Our channel is not going to grow. It's going to shrink. Let's go for the gusto. Let's try to form a new way of selling it and not depend on the banks and make it work. And If it doesn't work, we'll go off and do something else. Back then, there were some pioneers. Uh, Philippe Kahn had started to sell software through magazine ads with an 800 number. Turbo Pascal was his first product. And there started to be this direct-to-consumer method of selling software as opposed to being dependent on an intermediator. And so we decided to try that. We cut costs. We cut the product price in half to 49 bucks. We changed our production. And I found a guy to teach me how to write direct sales ads, an ad that's a direct marketing ad. To the consumer. To the consumer, mm-hmm. to get somebody to call that 800 number and order, or click the coupon and mail it in and buy. And it's entirely different than the marketing I learned at P&G, totally different. And I got a guy to teach it to me. I, I couldn't pay him, but he would teach me the rules and I would write up an ad and I'd fax him the ad and he would call up and say, nope, nope, not that, not that, not that, you gotta change this. You gotta, I would redo the ad and I'd fax it to him. And so I got a coach basically and learned a skill, which I didn't know. And if those ads hadn't worked, also luckily for us at the same time, formal retail chains selling software arose. Chains that focused only on selling software. Now, this was a retail channel like I knew at Procter & Gamble. These were retail stores. They bought in volume. Is this like Fry's? Fry's sold everything. Right. A canonical one was a group called Egghead Software out of Washington. And they had built a chain of 120 stores across the country. And they were filled with just software. So they had to fill the shelves. So they would take the market leaders, but they also took our stuff. Right. They took it just because they would respond to what people were saying. Right. People started coming and asking for it. Because of the banks. We sold to the banks. The banks got some customers. The customers told their friends. And word of mouth, those friends went into software stores like Egghead and said, hey, I want this Quicken thing. They said, no, no, we got those other." They said, no, no, I want this Quicken thing. and They ordered it, and then we threw advertising on top of it, and
1: it worked. And the ball started finally bouncing your way. Now
0: we started tripling in revenue, triple each year, triple again, triple again, and then the whole problem changed. Now we were just trying to keep up.
1: So a couple of triples in a row, you start approaching 1990, and you come back to Sandhill. You take another bite of the apple. Yes. Obviously, I play for the home team here, so I have to know the story. (laughs) I heard, tell me if this is folklore or not, but when you decided that you wanted to raise some money, one of the stops was Kleiner Perkins. And what was very important to you was not just the money, but that you wanted a board member who was, in quotes, centrally tied to the cutting edge of PC technology.
0: Yes, that's correct.
1: John Doerr was a pretty good candidate for that.
0: He was the ultimate. He was (laughs) the ultimate candidate. He was the guy. Mm -hmm. He was, yep, absolutely. Kleiner Perkins was the number one firm, and John was the most tied in, the
1: most connected. However, you had two concerns. And again, tell me if this is wrong. You had two concerns. Would John be available when you needed him? Because he was pretty busy with, at the time... Amazon. and
0: Amazon hadn't happened yet.
1: Oh, Google. Google hadn't happened yet. This what was, was he in, busy this with? This was 1990. Oh, Raft or other things. Like Okay.
0: Yeah. Netscape maybe. Oh uh, no. Netscape was still after this. Trust me. He was busy. He
1: was busy. Mm-hmm. Compact. Yes. compact. Sun. Sun. Those two would have been on his list. Yeah. Those would have been on his mm-hmm. list. Yeah. So that's number one. He was busy. He was doing pretty good. Well, it's crazy to think that at that point at 90, he still wasn't even doing the the huge ones, the Amazon's and the Google, that's crazy. Anyway. Pretty amazing industry we could Amazing. Take. I actually I just had him in this room last week for episode 100. We just released, really special. Number one, would Dorvi available when you needed him? Number two, would he try and micromanage the firm? And tell me if I'm wrong, but he had a bit of a reputation for rolling up his sleeves. Yes. And, you know, there's pros and cons to rolling up your sleeves.
0: There is. And there was a trope going around that with John Doerr on your board, you don't need any product managers. (laughs) 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 Clearly an exaggeration, but, you know, I didn't know. Illustrates the point. It illustrates the point. Did you bring this up to John? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, Kleiner wanted to invest. And so he said, okay. And Tom and I did this together. We have a concern and we want you, John, on the board. And they actually wanted to slide us to someone else, but we said, no, if you're going to invest, we won't take your money unless it's you on the board. So he agreed. And then we said, okay, but we have a concern. We've heard this. And can you just write us a note to set our expectations about what will be your role? How do you view your role as a board member? And we wanted to have it, so, in case he deviated from being a board member and tried to be an employee or an executive, we could say, "John, you know we talked about this. this is, is a contract, this is what you said yeah, and he wrote an excellent letter. you know he 's a very smart and super wise guy, and he he wrote the letter describing what the role of a passionate board member should be you're kidding, but knowing the line that he 's not an executive, and it had examples, it was really good. Uh, We kept the letter. Do you still have that? Tom does. Tom still has it. Can you, is there any, can you get that? I want to put it in the show notes if you're open to it. (laughs) We'll see. I'd have to, you know, the reality is- That's deep in the archives. It is. We never needed it. Why not? He never transgressed. He was helpful to the max, but never tried to play the role of executive. So he was, yeah, we never needed to pull the letter out. It's
1: amazing. What a good story. That was 1990. Correct. Then, 91- comes around. Things are going great. You raise money, finally. You're tripling the business. There's clearly a there there. You're not the only ones that start to realize that there's a there there. Others may also realize that, including Microsoft. In my episode with John, somehow Microsoft came up because he was frenemies with Bill, for sure. There was a few companies that John was Investing in that we're trying to disrupt the status quo, Microsoft being that status quo. And um, the advice that he would say is, only damn fools stand in front of oncoming trains. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) And they gave you a kind of a lowball offer to buy the company. Is that true? Well, the order of events, that came later. Okay, go ahead. Well, we wound up being that damn fool, by the way.
0: But the way it happened is uh, we did not have a Windows version of
1: Quicken. And I'm sorry to interrupt you. Was Steve Ballmer at Microsoft yet? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He'd been at Microsoft since early days. So you knew him? Yes. And you knew he was there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You guys knew each other in this moment.
0: Yeah, and not just him. They'd hired a senior executive out of PNG who became the kind of chief operating officer. Okay. And I knew that guy and went up and talked with him and learned from him. And we'd actually done joint promotions with Microsoft. It's part of the re- way they came to understand the category is we went and explained it to them because they did a joint promotion with one of our then-competitors and we needed to educate Microsoft that, you no, know, that competitor is ultimately going to lose. You really want to do your joint promotions with the superior product. So we had educated them. And then they started doing promotions with us. So there was a team up there that we had worked with, good guys, who we liked. And then they came to us saying, hey, why don't we co-develop between Microsoft and Intuit a Windows version of Quicken? And so we did six months of negotiation and discussions with their team and our team, thinking that we'd co develop and they'd bring the Windows expertise, which we had none of, and we would bring the personal finance expertise and the brand name. And six months into this, Mike Maples Sr., who's the father of Mike Maples, the- um, Floodgate. The Floodgate seed investor. Delightful man uh, that Microsoft had hired, who was then the kind of acting COO. He called me up and said, hey, Scott, our team's been negotiating for six months. And we've concluded that we're not going to come to an agreement because you Intuit think that if we competed against each other, you'd get 60% of the Windows business. And we, Microsoft, think we'd get 60%, so we can't seem to find a basis to get together. So I'm calling to let you know that we're breaking off the negotiations. We've rolled, started up a team. The team is working on building our own Windows personal finance product, which we will launch in a year. And I just wanted you to know that. Two things are true. One. He was, and our experiences, Microsoft was at times and with us so noble, he did the right thing. He didn't have to do that. They could have kept leading us on for months and months and months, and we would have never known. But he very honorably told us what they were going to do. And the second thing is we were, uh, had just found out that the speeding locomotive and the full train is heading right at us. And you have to understand, we've got to go in the way back machine. Because there's nothing like this in the world today. Microsoft then had the scale and power as if you combined today's Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft all into one company.
1: That's the behemoth that Microsoft was. That's how powerful they were. That's how powerful. Before any of the antitrust stuff. Correct.
0: And they'd earned it. They earned their power the old-fashioned way, the
1: legal way. They built it. They didn't acquire their way into these things. They built it. You're saying they're the most formidable of folks, Oh, you uh,
0: in, in a sense, that nobody is today. Oh, throw Apple into the mix, too. And more than that, they had demolished every competitor they'd gone against. Roadkill crushed them, including the biggest companies in the business. VisiCalc, Lotus, WordPerfect were all Roadkill. Microsoft had rolled over them. We were the smallest company that they were going to compete against. We were a Pipsqueeze compared to those giants that had gotten crushed. So this looked like, and I think everyone thought this would be curtains. How could little pipsqueak into it stand up? But we said, this is our do or die moment. We either win this battle or we're toast.
1: And did it rally the team in a weird way?
0: Ultimately, totally, yes. And I got to thank one particular individual. Gosh, without him, without Eric Dunn, we got partway through trying to develop a Windows version of Quicken, and we found out that our development approach wasn't going to work. And we would burned six months. We had 12. Now we had only six left. Eric, who is a polymath, who was our CFO, and had taught himself to code, he said, give me a team. I'm going to take a team. We'll go off premises, and we will work nights and weekends, and we'll build it. And they did. How long did it take them?
1: Seven months. And so you released it 13 months after that conversation? Yes. One
0: month after Microsoft launched.
1: You released it a month after?
0: Yes. And so Microsoft did very well for a month. Then we launched. And we had a scorched earth marketing plan. Mary Baker, who was our head of marketing, did a really aggressive marketing and pricing plan. We priced aggressively. We did aggressive promotions. We were gunning for our life. We had to win this. Our only hope was that we could stop them so dramatically that the industry would wake up and say, whoa, whoa, what was that? That wasn't supposed to happen. Oh, maybe these little Intuit guys actually will win that battle. But if Microsoft had gotten ahead and stayed ahead, everyone would have assumed we were roadkill to be. And and you would have been. And we would have been. Mm-hmm. So we had to stop them immediately. And our our penultimate goal, if we could do it, was to make it so torturous that no one good at Microsoft would want to work on the business
1: right. competing against us. Because they could just go take on anybody else and just go win those markets. Yeah,
0: they, they had efforts
1: in so many markets at once. And I wonder, was this market seemingly small... Did it look smaller than it ultimately became at the time? Do you think they discredited or discounted what saw, how big this market could be? Keep in mind, by this point, Quicken was a huge seller
0: in units. Prices were lower than what Microsoft sold stuff for, So we didn't have it, weren't even close to the revenue of their businesses. But, but it's the sold. units, the number the units. of units we were selling yeah. was high. And they had imperial ambitions. You know, as any real market leader that's ahead of the industry sure. and wanted to be everywhere. And I'm sure the team that was on it thought they were going to win. Our goal was to try it if we could make it look so career limiting that no good people would want to join the team. It ultimately worked. We we were able to convince the operating system division of Microsoft, which was selling Windows 3.1, that they should joint promote with Quicken for Windows instead of Microsoft Money because we had the brand name and we had, and they did. they, They really hacked off the people on the money team, Microsoft money team, because their own compatriots were promoting the enemy. So we really, really worked it. I got to credit what, and then John was so helpful. John Doerr. Uh, John Doerr. When we we launched our product the month after, we didn't quite have every element in that Microsoft had put into money. Money was a very credible copy. Mm -hmm. It didn't path break. It was just a very credible copy. But they had a couple of things they did. And so we went to John and said, can you give us help? Who do you know who could help us rapidly build? the things that Microsoft money has that we don't have. And sure enough, he opened the Rolodex. He made introductions to a couple of folks. And just over a month after we launched the first version, we launched a second version that caught up on the things that we didn't have. Mm -hmm. John played a big role in that. I found out only later when I was on the board of Amazon and Amazon hired a really top, top product and business leader from Microsoft. He was the original owner of the store. You know, after Jeff, the business got big enough, Jeff couldn't own the store anymore because Jeff had everything reporting to him. This guy then came in and owned the retail store. At Amazon. At Amazon. Mm -hmm. He was really good. And he told me, oh yeah, I'd been offered the job to come in and run money after the launch. And I turned it down. I said, that doesn't look like a good job. So I found it actually worked.
1: It worked. It actually worked. And it worked so well that for a few years, the business started absolutely taking off again.
0: Uh, we were continuing to grow. The big chapter that happened at the same time while we were fighting this battle was we were building in the background our entry into the small business marketplace, building QuickBooks, and we launched QuickBooks about the same timing, six months later, and that opened up a whole new chapter. And you know that's now half our company.
1: Wow. 94, let's fast forward a couple of years. QuickBooks starts working again. QuickBooks start working. Core business is working. QuickBooks is working. Yeah. QuickBooks is really working. And at this point, you knew you had a tiger by the tail, I imagine. And Microsoft tries again. Did Bill call you? He wrote me an
0: email. BillG at Microsoft.com. And the first line of the email, I still remember it, said, this really is Bill Gates. <laughs> So I, I don't know, maybe people were impersonating him. I don't know. And he said, hey, I, um, I'd be interested in talking to see what we could do together and maybe we'll get our two companies together. So it came right out of the blue. No phone calls. So I emailed back and we got in a conversation. I said, Bill, we don't want to be acquired. We kind of like the business we have. It's really working. We'd gone public in March of 93. And this Bill's email arrived... In March of 94, I'm guessing,
1: or April. And it went public at a pretty decent number, right? Yeah, and then we went up from there. Like you were a made man at that point.
0: Well, no, we were fighting Microsoft.
1: I should say like you were financially set. Yes, yes, that's right. That concern was basically taken off the table for you at that point.
0: <sighs> God, when you were fighting Microsoft, you never... <laughs> you lived with this shadow. Hangover
1: of anxiety and that always hangover,
0: lives. this gray sky above any... Possible positive emotion you might have because they had so. I mean, if they'd done a few things right, they just kind of rolled over right. in their sleep. Right. So he emails you. Yeah, and then we email back. We had a phone conversation. We then met, and I kept saying we don't want to get acquired, but I saw things we wanted. We could use their help to get into banks because we'd stopped working with banks. Uh, after the Quicken piece. And we knew banks had the source of bank data and we wanted to get the bank data to go in to help automate things for our customers. And they were in every bank. And then we wanted to go international. By this point, we had put Quicken into Canada and the UK and they were successful, but there was a whole bigger world and Microsoft was operating in every country and we were operating only in those three. So eventually we worked out a deal where his offer was, we'll have you, uh, you can stay in... Menlo Park, which is where our headquarters was. You don't have to move to Seattle. And not only will you run all of our finance stuff, we'll also give you e-commerce to run on behalf of Microsoft. And then we insisted, okay, the only way the government's gonna allow this is if you spin off Microsoft Money to another company, because they're not gonna allow the two competitors to combine. So you have to find a home for Microsoft Money and make that work. And then the other part of the deal was, Bill, we're not gonna open the kimono to you and show you anything inside anything secret, any plans. You have to do this entirely on public information. Because we'd seen other companies try to woo Microsoft by exposing all their future plans. And Microsoft, of course, listened. Yep. So we said, hey, we're going to keep you on the dark uh, until we're formally married. And uh, then we had a price negotiation. I remember negotiating the price in part standing at a Seven Eleven store on a payphone because I had the kids and we were up at Lake Tahoe and there was no cell where the house was in Lake mm-hmm. Tahoe that we had... Borrowed. And so I had to drive to a 7 Eleven and get on a uh, payphone. Who are you talking to? Bill.
1: I'm from the payphone. Yeah. yeah. Ne-
0: negotiating the price. <laughs> negotiating the price. Yeah. And what would you land on? Uh, deal size was a billion and a half. Okay. And
1: that was big at the time.
0: Well, yeah. It turns out we had one meeting, Bill and I, in the United Airlines Red Carpet Club at the SeaTac Airport. Mm-hmm. And for security to keep this all quiet, we went in separately and Bill Gates was Bill Gates at the time absolutely you, he would be recognized absolutely recognized totally totally so he had to go in the conference room separate And I went in we had our discussions and we were both excited and we were so excited that when it was time to leave we came out of the conference room we came out of the red carpet club into the concourse saying oh this is going to be the biggest deal in software history <gasps> oh shit <laughs> fortunately no one was around no one recognized him we were so lucky <laughs> So yes, it was the biggest deal that had been done in PC software. And did they end up selling the money component? They did. They did it. They essentially gave it to Novell okay. to run. And Novell was a sizable company, not nearly Microsoft. And then whatever, they bought it? Then by US law, you have a review for antitrust purposes, all transactions of this type. And so the Department of Justice then has 30 days to do what's called a second request if they get curious and want to investigate. And we knew they would do that. And they did. And then they have months to go in and subpoena your documents and ask for documents and then decide whether they want to sue to block a merger or not. And months went by. We concluded and announced the deal in October of 94. And months and months went by. And then in June of 95, the DOJ announced
1: they were going to sue to block the deal. And that was a surprise. We actually thought It would go through. It would go through because- To the point that Microsoft got rid of their money product. Exactly.
0: Exactly. And at that point, the lawsuit would have taken years. And at that point, Microsoft folded their tent saying, look, this lawsuit could take years. And if it does take years and they decide to block it, we'll be out of business. I mean, everyone knows you're the winning product that we like and we just can't run the risk of having this. So Microsoft backed out and that kicked in a very juicy um, termination fee that was in our contract how much i don't even remember now but it was tens of millions of dollars yeah because we knew there was no certainty so
1: and you got rid of microsoft as a competitor well not really they never formally gave money so money still was in their purview. still in microsoft they
0: had uh, basically <laughs> su- under
1: the contingency yeah.
0: if the deal got approved yes then Novell would take the exactly. Novell would take the money product exactly So, no, we didn't get rid of Microsoft.
1: You were still competing.
0: And Microsoft continued to compete against us for another 15 years. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, they kept coming with more versions of money. They came after QuickBooks with four different products over a 15-year period, four different attempts to enter the small business accounting space. Do they still? Well, I'll get to that. Uh, They came after TurboTax. By this point, we'd acquired TurboTax. They came after TurboTax with a product called TaxSaver, uh-huh So they came after every sizable business we had, and time, and they kept coming back and back. Oh God, they're persistent. And they should be. Well-run companies are persistent. Yeah. Finally, they got an exec in and gave him the, all the portfolio of a whole bunch of businesses that wasn't office and windows. And he looked across all this other portfolio, looked at their results and said, "What are we doing? We're getting nowhere." And so this exec shot it all down. A tax saver they'd already exited, and they recommended to the few customers they have, go buy TurboTax. And so this exec got rid of the rest of the, their competitors to us, and we worked out deals, so they would recommend, hey, we're, we're exiting the money business, but you know, we've worked out, you'll get a special deal on Quicken. So.
1: must have been one of the best professional days of your life.
0: It was. It was. I, in more ways, you know, having that
1: cloud, that weight on you removed was quite joyous. Then we get to ninety five, ninety six. You've been at the helm running into it for 10 years now, nine to 10 years. And I've heard you say that it became clear that to you, that you're holding the company back. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I wasn't growing my skills as a leader, my capabilities as fast as the company needed.
1: company was growing exponentially and you were not. Right. Absolutely. And it was obvious to you.
0: It takes a while for one's psyche to admit it. There were days when I felt, oh, geez, this, I'm not lousy at this. But other days I felt I was great at parts of the job. So I, it takes a while to sink in and for your ego to let you admit that you're not doing the job the company needs.
1: Did the job lose its luster a little bit after going public too? Just being a public company CEO versus private? No, I'd say then it was easier. There
0: weren't as many administrative things. And no, it was a new game. You now had investors, and you now got to evangelize to investors. And uh, no, and we had products people could understand, so investors could understand them. So uh, no, I'd say it didn't lose its luster. That was a good thing. And because we went public, we were able to do things like acquire chips off
1: the maker of TurboTax. There's a Richard Feynman quote that I've heard you say. I don't know where, so forgive me. I've been deep in the Scott Cook archives for a few days now, but- Oh, my condolences. (laughs) He says, and Richard Feynman's amazing, amazing. When it comes to yourself, the easiest person to fool is yourself. And I think you were referencing this time in your career. Yeah. Could you unpack that a little bit? No, No, that's part of that internal
0: disagreement in myself. Because you do fool yourself. We all do. Our minds sanitize what we see about ourselves. And you see the good parts and you kind of skip over the bad parts. And that's human. I think it keeps us sane. But it also means not only is your mind giving you a Pollyannish view of yourself, so are your people. When you're the leader, no one in your company comes to you and say, hey, Scott, you really screwed up today. That was terrible. If you do that again, nobody comes to you with that. They're all giving you the happy talk. Oh, you're great. Yeah, you're really good. That was really good you're seeing one half of the ledger in what your people tell you. You're not seeing the other half. So that means your flight instruments are giving you wrong data. And if you fly a plane with bad data, you'll run into a mountain. That's just the reality. It's not just your mind fooling you. It's your people too. And they're not doing it for any nefarious reason other than they want to keep their job and get promoted. And most bosses don't want to hear the ugly stuff about themselves. So, you know, after all the pain we'd been through, I didn't want to be the one that was actually the one was the problem. And I decided, let me find a a person, the best person I can find, who's got all the strength I don't have, who loves to do the stuff that I'm crappy at. And then I can focus on what I like. That person can focus on what they're great at. And together, we'll be much stronger. And let me make that the CEO title so I can find the best person without a barrier.
1: And you found Bill Campbell.
0: And I found Thanks to John Doerr. I found Bill Campbell. Who was Bill Campbell at the time? I broke the mold. The most amazing individual in working with other individuals. The person I was really looking for. I wanted somebody who not only could be the leader, but also could be a great coach who could grow the capabilities of our people. Like I still didn't feel I was doing the right job growing our engineering leaders. because I'm not an engineer. And I felt our people were better than I was able to help them become. And I felt a debt to help them be the best they could be and so i wanted to find somebody who was a great coach could really help people excel and then help the organization work together be decisive make decisions go that's bill
1: that's you know that's why he's called the billion dollar coach it's amazing bill campbell comes in and what do you do have you had no title since then No, I was
0: chairman. I kept the chairman title Uh and Bill was CEO. But titles don't matter. In this case, what I do is the things that Bill didn't want to do and wasn't as good at. He would tell anyone that he's really not a product person. He loves engineers and they like him, but he's not a product person. He doesn't like talking to the press and not at all. And he doesn't like talking to investors.
1: He just loves building the business. He
0: loves building the people that then build the business. So I kept doing product work and kept doing the investor and press work.
1: And the name of the book Billion Dollar Coach, correct? Yes. What's the number one lesson on leadership that you learned from him that absolutely changed the way forever that you led people?
0: Oh, there's so many. The thing about Bill is he led not through words, but through this animal connection to people, his ability for people to want to please him, to work hard for Bill. All of us have had a great coach somewhere where you just strive for the coach, And it's not so much their words, it's them as a person. So I think seeing that ancestral human side of how a leader works was just eye-opening. Because I tend to be more cut and dry and more logical and focus on the words. But if I had to pick the words, I would say, one of his phrases was, your title makes you a manager. Your people make you a leader. What do you think he meant by that? That the true test of leadership is creating followership. If you're not working away where they are excitedly following you, if you're having to use the stick, not the carrot, if you're having to use your title to get things done, you're more of a manager than a leader.
1: How obvious was it to you when you met Bill that this was your guy?
0: It wasn't initially. We hired a big, fancy headhunter. And right early in the process, as we began, John, who initially actually had fought my decision to- Step down. Step down. He was saying, Stay. Yeah, and he went and talked to one of the other directors and said, well, this is working great. Why does Scott want to do this? You know, He was very supportive of me as uh, founder and CEO. And one of our other board members said, look, Scott wants to do it. John, lighten up. Let him do what he wants to do. So then John immediately said, you should talk to Bill Campbell. Bill had been brought in to take over a failing company in the Kleiner portfolio, one that had gotten crushed by Microsoft. Go? Go Corporation, exactly, and Bill's charter, I think, was to find a buyer for it, and he did. So he was now out of there because they sold it. And uh, John said you should talk to Bill. So I talked to him. We went out to a local hotel, had breakfast or lunch, and I was not impressed. He's earthy. He's not that well spoken. Um, He's very different from you. Oh God, we are real. We are. It's kind of like the same values totally different people. Uh And it didn't connect. So we continued with the search, and the big fancy headhunter brought us candidates, but nobody any good. And so then John said, after seeing that we were not getting candidates we wanted, said, well, so why don't you talk to Bill again? And this time, spend more time with him. So I did. I went over to his house in Palo Alto, and then we walked around the block, and walked around the neighborhood together, and spent, I don't know, a couple hours together. And I began to see the magic of this man so I asked him, hey, Bill, give me a case study of someone who worked for you who needed to change something, wasn't, had some flaw, some capability or problem, and, and what you did for that person. And he'd give me an example of a certain person and walk through that person's strengths, that person's weaknesses, what was a particular foible, how it was showing up, and then what he did. And he'd describe, well, for this person, I did this, and then we did this, and I worked for him. And then one time I had to take him out to the woodshed, and I had to talk to him about this. And, and I said, okay, that's great. And how'd the guy do? And then the guy was hugely improved. And I said, okay, Bill, give me another example. Now, I'd done the same interview approach with other CEO candidates. And they'd walk me through three examples. And they basically had done a cut and paste in each one. Whatever method they used, it was the same method in every case. In other words, they were kind of one-trick ponies. With Bill, total opposite. Okay, so oh, there was this woman. She worked for me and blah, blah. blah, blah. Totally, he diagnosed it differently. The root cause was different. He did totally different things with her than he did with the first one and had the same end result. She got a ton better and grew dramatically. And I said, okay, Bill, how about another example? Same thing happened again, a totally different story, a different person with a totally different situation. Bill did very different things. I said, oh my God, this guy's like a symphony conductor. He's, He's playing to each instrument the way it needs to be played to make it the best it can be. And that's what convinced me that Bill was the guy I was looking for.
1: If it's a founder or CEO today listening, And they're tired. Let's just say like the hardest part about building these businesses, especially in today's day and age, in my opinion, is not the tactics. It's the endurance. It is the absolute endurance of being able to continue on. Let's imagine they're tired 10 years in. What signal do they have to know it's time to step down? What was it for you that you could relay?
0: Two things. The mix of things which the company needed me to do was moving more and more in a mix of things where I'd feel crappy when I was done with it. But in the areas and work, I didn't feel I was doing a good job in.
1: Like going back to Monday morning, you would just not be yes,
0: excited. exactly. And the mix was moving in that direction. Now one, I didn't like it. And two, I was doing crappy. And three, I think that was hurting the company. And then I did something, and I now have done this with many others. I made a two column list along, very much aligned with your question of, what are the things that when I come into work, I'm jazzed, I can't wait to get into work on. What are the things that when I have that on the docket for the day that I drag into work and I'm not looking forward to it? And I saw the two lists and I said, I gotta find somebody to do that list that I'm not good at. My life will get so much better. I'll be so much, not only doing what I love, but doing better at it. If I can get the stuff that I hate off my plate and find someone who's great at it. Because if we don't, those things are gonna kill us. You know, I could wind up being the problem that either retards or sinks the company. It's amazing
1: in hindsight. And it's
0: Uh, such a helpful exercise to just be clear in black and white, which is what's in each column, and then find somebody who can ace that other column.
1: I have one more random question for you before we wrap up. Is it true that you invested in Snapchat Mm -hmm. very early? Yes. When uh, Evan Spiegel saw you giving a guest lecture at Stanford?
0: Well, there's a little bit of a story. There's a Stanford GSB, Graduate School of Business, class on entrepreneurship and venture capital. It's way oversubscribed. It's super popular. People have to do the lottery to get in. And it's taught by one of our venture investors when we ultimately did get venture capital, which, by the way, the company didn't need when we got it in 1990. None of the money went into the company. It all went to us selling shareholders. Three venture capitalists came in, Kleiner, another one called TVI, and then a smaller one came in third, and that was Sierra Ventures, run by my former roommate from business school.
1: That passed on you originally. That
0: passed on originally. And he's been a superb advisor for basically since the first few months in business school. He really helped guide me through the whole process of getting venture capital, and he's, he teaches that class and has taught it for 20 years. One of the cases, there was one class session, which is the original Intuit business plan, lightly camouflaged, so it doesn't say Intuit, doesn't say Quicken, and he tries to provoke a discussion between the students about why wouldn't you invest? Don't be fooled by what actually happened. Look at the facts in black and white in the case, and what decision would you have made as a VC and why? And he's trying to provoke a real debate because, you know, it's as was, it didn't get funded. And he's trying to help the students see both sides of that. This is the stopwatch era. Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. The business yeah. plan with the stopwatch yep, yep, data. Yep, yep. It's that business plan. Yeah, It's kind of the only one we had. One year, he couldn't really get the debate going. Everybody would say, oh, I'd invest. Sure, sure, sure. Oh, it's going to be hugely successful. He mm-hmm. couldn't get people to deal with the reality of a leadership team that had no experience in software. Competitors were out featuring us and, we're, and he couldn't get people to deal with it. And until the very end of the class, one guy in the last row at the top finally spoke up and said, well, Professor Wendell, here's how I see it. And he laid it out beautifully. This guy really understood the case better than all the rest of the class. Afterwards, I went up to Peter and said, hey, who was that guy in the top row? You were in the class. Yeah, yeah. Peter has me come in and watch the class. And then for the first two thirds, and then the last third of the class, I opine about what actually happened Uh and answer questions. Oh, cool, yeah. Yeah. So I've attended most of these over the last 20 years. After the class, I asked him, who was that guy? The guy who nailed it at the end in the top row. He laughed and said, that wasn't an MBA student. That was an undergrad. An undergrad who's auditing the course. I said, I want to meet that guy. So he said, fine, I'll introduce you. Are you serious? Absolutely. So Evan and I had lunch, and I said, Evan, that's really impressive. I was very impressed the way you wrapped up the case so wisely and better than the rest of the folks did. You know, we've got an entrepreneurial project in the office, and I think you'd contribute. You'd be a real valuable contributor, and I think you'd learn something. Let me introduce you to the team. He said, sure. So introduced him to the team. He came to some of the team meetings for about two months, and then he got distracted by something else, this other business idea that he had. And then he approached me to invest. And I listened to the idea, and this is the idea of sharing photos and content with your friends that disappears in 24 hours. I said, this, I thought to myself, this is really a stupid idea. Who's going to want content that disappears? But he is such a thoughtful entrepreneur that I like him, even though I don't like the business at all, he'll pivot to something better. So I invested. And were you one of the first checks in? Gosh, I honestly don't know. How much did you put in? I don't remember now. I, it wasn't a large amount of money. This was early days. I don't know, 50,000, 100,000. And he shattered your paradigm? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I was dead wrong. He was dead right. What a great story. I had no idea. Again, that's the power of paradigm. I could not see it. I was not in the paradigm of having content that I would grow up and not want people to see. Now I totally get it, seeing and particularly having teenagers now since, but I didn't. I was totally outside the paradigm. Couldn't see out. Wow. But I had believed that he would find the business.
1: Unbelievable. Well, I have kept you for too long. I am incredibly grateful for this. This was spectacular. I always wrap these things up the same way, which is with the same question. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of or what comes to mind for you?
0: And you're not talking the sandpaper. I am not. <clears throat> I am the talking abrasive the, on
1: sandpaper. I am talking the quality of grit. Uh, two
0: things, and in equal measure, I think. Determination and let's call it agility. Determination to stay focused through all sorts of problems and maelstroms and setbacks, to stay focused on the outcome. What's the outcome you're trying to deliver to the world or to the customer? Determination to stay with it, coupled with, in equal measure, this agility to keep learning what's working and what's not working. So you're not a Pure determination, we're just a bulldozer going forward, no matter, not learning, not changing course. The agility is to change course, to see, well, that didn't work. Well, let's try this. Ooh, that distribution channel. Okay, that didn't work. No, what did we learn here? Ah, it's that agility to dance like a bee, to learn from the world what's working and what's not in service to your ultimate goal to get to that outcome, but not getting locked into anything between here and that outcome. That to me is the grit that can drive success
1: the world around me for the last hour and a half literally just stopped Scott Cook thank you thank you so much that's it thanks for listening if you're just discovering the podcast we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake Twilio Slack LinkedIn Box etc if you want to keep up or support the show the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify subscribing on Apple and leaving a review also we love feedback so feel free to email us, grit at